The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate and focus, eliminate distractions from our lives so that we can uh, take in the Word of God clearly under the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit and His teaching ministry. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer for the option of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege we have to gather together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might have our souls washed by the water of your word, that we might understand how to think biblically, how to act in accordance with your will, that we might advance to spiritual maturity, glorify you. Father, one of the greatest enemies in our lives is our own thinking, the many principles and concepts and assumptions that we have just picked up and adopted from the culture, from the worldly cosmic system of thinking around us. And Father, we need to have the courage to evaluate our own thinking, to bring it under the spotlight of your word that we might be transformed into the image of Christ based on his thinking. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would make these things clear to us and that we would have the courage to honestly and objectively face what we find and apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the big day. There's the map for those of you who weren't here on Wednesday night. Headed to uh, Kazakhstan by way of Paris. We're going to spend uh, about a week there. Pam, for those of you who don't know, Pam's mother lives in Paris, so uh, at least for now they'll be back later on this year. But we are going to spend a little time with them. And then we're off next Sunday. We leave from Paris to fly to uh, Kazakhstan. Now, as you can see, Kazakhstan is located south of Russia, north of a number of minor former Soviet republics like Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, and a couple of others I can never remember. And uh, it is as large as the western half of the United States, so it is a large territory. And, of course, it's longer from east to west, so it's quite a good ways across. It is where the uh, former Soviet republic fired off, had their space program located. It's also where their nuclear... Many of their nuclear projects were located. The town that we are going to is Almaty, which is located there on the uh, lower let's see. Let's get down here. There we are. This area right here, this lower right hand corner here, 
It is just north of the Kyrgyzstan border, and as you can see, it's about 150 miles or so from China. This is the border with China here, and up here on the upper right area of the map, just to the west of where it goes off the screen, is Mongolia. So we're on the other side of the world. There's an 11-hour time difference between here and there, so we're going all the way around to the other side of the world. So we'll get there. We land, the plane lands at 1.30 in the morning on Monday. We're told to expect about a two-hour delay going through customs and getting everything squared away. So I figure about 4 o'clock in the morning we'll get to wherever it is we're going to stay. And uh, at 8 o'clock I start teaching. So we will be testing a number of things. Yeah, Barry. No, I don't think so. No, in fact, I got on the Internet this morning, checked the weather forecast, and the weather forecast there is just a tad warmer than here, 60 to mid-80s. Uh, it can get up into the low 90s there, so it's just kind of about what we would expect for our summer here. It's high. It's located about 5,500 feet above sea level, so I'm expecting there to be, uh, even if it's 90, it'll be a, more of a dry heat, uh, more like uh, Denver. It's a city of a million and a half, and... One of the major industries in Kazakhstan is the oil business. So there are a lot of Westerners who go there. So there are a lot of amenities. I got on the Internet at one time to check hotel rooms in the Hyatt Regency there. They, see, they think all Americans are made of money. So the Hyatt Regency there charges 500 bucks a night. So we decided we would not be staying at the Hyatt Regency on this trip. So it's... Uh, it will be an adventure, and I'm going to, uh, we're go we are going to have email access. Jim Myers will have his, uh, I'll have my computer with me, but he'll have his set up with a, an account there so that we can email out, and I'll be emailing reports every two or three days to Dan so that uh, he can uh, give everybody a report on, on our arrival and what's going on. So now you're up to speed on that. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Judges. Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, and last time we got down to about verse 20. We saw in the previous verses the condemnation of Israel from the angel, the messenger, the envoy of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, in the first five verses. And then there is a rehearsal starting in verse 6 down through verse 19 of the basic cyclical problem of carnality among the Jews. We read in verse 11, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals, the, that is the Canaanite fertility religions. Verse 13, So they forsook the Lord and served, that is they worshipped, it's avad there, which means to worship in this context, and worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. And the basic point that we get from this is like so many Christians, they have an external identification with God, with Christianity, but in terms of day-to-day -day life and their own priorities, they're really worshiping whatever the value system of the culture around them is, rather than letting their thinking be transformed and renewed by divine viewpoint. Last time we looked at reversionism as a term that describes this process of spiritual decay. Reversionism is defined as an act of reversing backing up, or going in the opposite direction. This is what happens when a believer gets, when someone gets saved, it 
Sometimes there's a lot of excitement that goes with that, especially if your life has been a life of calamity, a tragedy, a suffering. And if you've gone through some time of maybe a psychological or spiritual struggle where you're depressed or discouraged or really wrestling with issues in life, this happens with some people and then they're saved and there's such a release because of the confidence that they have and everything is great and then they get excited and they're going to church and they're positive to doctrine they have a number of questions and they're advancing for a while and then all of a sudden all the issues in life begin to uh, distract them because what happens as we grow as believers is we face tests and we can either respond to those tests in positive volition by applying doctrine that we've learned or negative volition and trying to handle it on our own terms uh, based on problem-solving devices of the world around us. And that could include anything from drugs, entertainment, uh, alcoholism, sex, social life, psychological techniques, whatever it might be. But it is turning your back on God, abandoning God, and turning to the techniques, the modus operandi of the world to solve problems. And that is a reversal then in the spiritual life where you start going in the other direction. Spiritual growth is, is uh, stunted, and in fact it begins to reverse. You're either going forward or backward in the spiritual life. You don't stand still except for maybe a half a second while you're in the process of reversing. So reversionism then is the act of reverting to a former state, that of being an unbeliever, habit. You go back and you solve problems by what was comfortable before you were saved. These are old habits. Psychology always talks about, oh, if you're going to solve the problems in your life, you have to understand why you have to go back and go through your childhood and understand all these dynamics. And that's just uh, a lot of balderdash because the Scripture never approaches it that way. The Scripture looks at it as man has bad habits. From the day you were born up till the time you were saved and even after, you were developing bad habits of how to face life. And that was based on your own sin nature and your own attempt to make life work on your own terms apart from God. Everybody does that. And so we get these ingrained habits, and the principle of Scripture is we have to go in and take them apart one issue at a time by applying doctrine, and eventually we break those bad habits of thought, bad habits of reaction, bad habits of emotional sins, whatever they may be, and we begin to grow. So reversionism is going back to those old, that old state of being an unbeliever, carnality, bad habits, uh, wrong belief systems, and practices related to pre-salvation sinning. So reversionism then is a reversal of your priorities where spiritual life, spiritual growth, and your relationship to God is no longer number one. So it's a reversal of your priorities, your attitudes, your affections. The object of your personal love is no longer God, but the things in the created order. And that is always accompanied by a destruction of your ability to exercise impersonal love. All of a sudden now, system testing and people testing becomes a major uh, source of distraction in your life and is usually destructive. And it is always accompanied by a change of lifestyle, habits, and personality. Now, we looked at a chart last time that we built, and I'm changing terminology a little bit uh, from what you may have been used to in, in um, uh, teaching of reversionism. I keep trying to refine some terminology to make it communicate just a little more. First of all, we have the stage of reaction, distraction, where some issue in life, some problem, some testing uh, comes along, temptation from either outside or from in, internally, from our own sin nature, causes us to focus on uh, our emotions, to focus on circumstances, to focus on people, and we become distracted then from applying doctrine. Second stage, 
then we, uh, as we get away from the Lord, we begin to realize a level of, of uh, unhappiness in life and misery. So we go on a frantic search for happiness and we start trying to find meaning in life from some detail of life. Friends, family, career, success, uh, whatever it might be, sex, drugs, alcohol, all kinds of things, entertainment, escapism, whatever it may be. People go on, every person has a different... Uh, different focus when they go on a happiness binge. And First Timothy or Second Timothy three four describes this as being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This eventually leads to soul poverty. We saw that from Psalm one hundred and six fifteen that that relates to the Jews when they were in the wilderness and God said that He gave them the request, He fulfilled the what they had asked for in their prayers, but what they were asking for was something that they thought would give them happiness. And what the, the Scripture says is not, not what the New American Standard says, that He sent a wasting disease among them, but that he, he gave them the desires of their heart, but He sent leanness to their soul. In other words, they got what they wanted, but it made them unhappy. I think there's an old African proverb that says something along the lines that, um, that when, when God, the gods want to punish you, they answer your prayers. So just always be careful what you pray for. But the Jews prayed for what for some variety in their diet, and they got it, but that really wasn't the problem. The problem was their spiritual life. And so after getting what they wanted, they, it just increased the poverty in their own soul. This then leads to the next stage, which is the emotional revolt of the soul, that instead of emotions being a responder to what you think, the emotions begin to dictate. When you get involved in emotionalism, you are on the way to subjectivity because then you start interpreting everything in life in terms of how it makes you feel. And if you are prone to arrogance, as we all are, and self-absorption, then as soon as somebody says something, you immediately take offense. We live in an era today when people are just overwhelmed with uh, hypersensitivity from self-absorption. In fact, we've made a national obsession out of it. And what this always reveals is that people just don't have a sense of humor anymore. It wasn't long ago that a friend of mine that I went to college with, who is now a uh, bird colonel down at the uh, down at the Pentagon and is a deputy uh, commander, or yeah, I think that's a deputy commander in charge of liaison with Southeastern Asian allies or something like that, sent me a, a innocuous series of email jokes. It had nothing that would offend anybody, really. I mean, it wasn't like some of these things you get. If you're familiar with jokes that go across the Internet, it was just kind of a poke fun a little bit at different regional accents and things of that nature, but nothing too, too serious. Well, I passed it on to a couple of buddies of mine, one of whom is a lieutenant colonel down in Houston, and he sent it to some friends of his, one of whom was a commander. This commander that he sent it to took offense. He wrote a blistering letter back to him, demanded that he never use military, uh, government-owned computers for such activity again, threatened his career, and forced him to send a written apology to everyone he had forwarded the email to. That is just childish and absurd and shows the fact that this guy is so concerned with his career that somebody might take offense and it might somehow go up the chain of command and hit him that he's lost all perspective and all sense of humor. And that's exactly what has happened in our nation. 
People, and that's the result of people being self-absorbed. And the result of self-absorption is hypersensitivity. And you can't even joke about a lot of things anymore just, just to joke about it and treat something lightly because somebody's going to get upset and offended and think that you uh, hate women or you hate, you're a racist or something like that. And um, it's just total absurdity and shows the arrogance of our nation. And that's what happens when people are operating on the emotional revolt of the soul. That's not all that happens. But that's part of it. You also get involved in spiritual schemes and concepts of spirituality that are based on emotion. And this is what's happening in so many churches. We've redefined worship in terms of... Now, nobody will come right out and say this, but you have to look at what's done. And worship has been redefined in terms of singing and the kinds of songs that are chosen in most, quote, contemporary worship services are designed to have a certain kind of music and a certain kind of shallow lyric so that the emphasis is on how the music makes you feel, the emotions that it generates, to sort of get you in this, what I call, otherworldly, pseudo-spiritual kind of mindset. And that's what's defined as spirituality. It's nothing more than emotional revolt of the soul. So most of the churches in our country are operating on emotion and not on doctrine. And so they're just doing the same thing Israel was doing. They claim to be aligned with God. They use all the vocabulary, all the terminology... But their practice is the worship of uh, pagan gods, and it's really the worship of emotion. Then the next stage, the fifth stage, is ingrained negative volition. By this time, negative volition has become so entrenched in your thinking that it's very difficult. It's not impossible, but it is extremely difficult to back up again. At this point, uh, God almost gives you over to the hardness of your heart. That's what he did with Pharaoh, who, of course, was an unbeliever. Uh, Saul reached a point like this. It's still possible, if you're alive, to reverse course. As long as you're alive, you can still use 1 John 1, 9. But when you reach this stage, what you have to do is put yourself on a, an extremely intense course of doctrine. You almost have to listen to eight or nine tapes a day just to keep your mind focused because you are so entrenched in wrong thinking and uh, erroneous lifestyle and bad character that you have to almost go through spiritual boot camp to get something reversed. Too bad we don't have a, a spiritual Marine Corps we can send a reversionist to every now and then like we do a 17-year-old troublemaker to get them straightened out. Ingrained negative volition then leads to blackout in the soul. This is the believer who has made a a lifestyle of walking in darkness. He goes back like the unbeliever. He loves the darkness rather than the light. And you start confronting them with Scripture. And boy, are you going to get a reaction. You start talking to them about what Scripture says. And all of a sudden you're judging them. You are uh, arrogant. You are uh, against them. You're not in, on their side at all. You can't be their friend anymore. And you may never hear from them again. They are in complete reaction to any kind of truth. This is because on the next stage they have built up scar tissue in the soul. They have become so calloused. So their, their thinking has been so hardened to the truth that they, re, they aren't even aware that they're resisting the truth anymore. They've reversed everything in their thinking so that good is bad and bad is good. And this is the final stage. I came up with a new term for it this morning. Cosmic degeneracy. Cosmic, K-O-S-M-I-C, from the Greek cosmos, meaning that they are now thinking completely like a citizen of the world. Worldly thinking dominates, and it produces degeneracy in both categories, moral degeneracy, 
and immoral degeneracy, and their lifestyle doesn't look any different from the unbelievers around them. Whether that's moral unbelievers or immoral unbelievers, they are completely degenerate in their thinking now, and there is nothing in their life that distinguishes them from an unbeliever. So that is the final stage, what, uh, what we've called reverse process reversionism before, is I'm calling cosmic degeneracy. And this is the situation in Israel. By the time we get into this summary, is that they are completely, uh, they've rejected God completely and they act no different from the Canaanites and the Canaanite culture that surrounds them. Now, when we come down to verse 20, when we come down to verse 20, we see God's response. Verse 20, God's response. So, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now, this brings up one of those issues in theology that has become a, a very controversial in uh, this century. You go back and you look at some of the uh, older works that were done back in the 19th century, and they don't have a problem with what we call anthropomorphisms, or a- especially anthropopathisms. And I'll define those terms in just a second. But today we live in a time when, when, when I went through Dallas Seminary, um, most of the courses, especially Hebrew courses, are where you get into figurative language the most. The concept of anthropopathism was pretty much rejected. And yet, uh, and, and the result of that is that passages like that, like this one, are taken at face value. That God actually is angry in the same way and in the same sense that men are angry. Now, the question that we must ask is, is this figurative in any kind of interpretation? The first question you have to ask in a difficult passage, is this figurative language or is this literal language? And that's the basic issue. In other words, is the writer of Scripture using something within human experience to communicate something analogous in God so that we can understand his operation, his policy by, by analogy, or is he speaking literally? Now, we know that anger is a sin. So, the first thing we need to ask, well, if this is God's anger, it's not going to be the same kind of sin that man has, which is usually energized by selfishness and failing to get his own way. But there's more to it than all of this, and and I've been engaged in some lengthy uh, debates and emails and questioning back and forth with various people over the last couple of years on this very issue. And one of the things that hit me about a month ago as I was working through some of this is... um, that, that the issue was always, are we talking about something literal or talking about something figurative? And, of course, when the discussion with uh, one particular individual uh, who is a trained theologian, uh, he, he was arguing, well, this, is, this has got to be literal. I mean, God, when God says that he's angry, that has to be taken literally. Otherwise, it wouldn't mean anything to us. Well, I got to thinking about this, and about 2 o'clock in the, in one day, 2 o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't even literal. Now, let's define some terms before we get into that. Anthropopathism, from the two Greek words, anthropos, meaning man, and pathos, meaning emotion. And and anthropopathism is defined as language of accommodation. That means God is accommodating himself to our frame of reference. Language of accommodation that ascribes to God human passions, emotions, thoughts, and attitudes which he does not actually possess 
in order to reveal and explain Himself to man. It's used to relate divine policy, divine acts and decisions to the finite mind of man. Examples of an anthropopathism include grief, repentance, vengeance, hatred, and anger. Grief in Genesis 6.6, repentance in Exodus 32.14, the King James Version, as well as in this passage here, we're going to see that word used a little later on down in about verse... uh, Let me see, about verse 21 or 22, we'll come to that same word. Vengeance, Isaiah 124, hatred, Psalm 5.5, anger in uh, this passage, also in Exodus, and also in Deuteronomy 29.23, in jealousy, in Exodus 34.14. Those are just some examples. Now, we have to understand the distinction then uh, in anthropopathism, and let's go on to anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is language of accommodation that ascribes to God human physical characteristics which He does not actually possess. Talking about the eyes of God, the nose of God. Uh, Sometimes you have what's called a zoomorphism, which ascribes to God animal characteristics, like God's wings, where the wings of God cover us, or something of that nature. So we have phrases like the face of God, the eyes of God, the ears of God, and this is to... uh, ascribe to God human physical characteristics which he does not actually possess to explain his essence, his policy, acts, and decisions in terms of human anatomy. So we're familiar with when it talks about the eyes of God going to and fro. We use eyes to look, to learn, to discover information. God, of course, doesn't do that because God's omniscient. And so the eyes of God is simply a figure of speech to communicate the omniscience of God, that He knows everything, and nothing escapes His knowledge. Now we have those two terms, anthropomorphism, anthropopathism and anthropomorphism. And when we come to looking at a phrase like the anger of God, it's not a literal term in the Hebrew. If you look at, the, at, at English, it, just, it talks about what we would call an emotion, anger. But that's not what you find in the original Hebrew. And this is something that I I think people haven't paid attention to. The Hebrew phrase actually looks like the top line there, which you can't read. I put that up there for Dan's benefit to stretch him a little bit this morning. Vaychar af Adonai. Read Adonai instead of Yahweh. The verb is kara plus the noun af. Af is no. Literally, hara means to burn or to grow red. So, the literal translation is God's nose burned. Now, is that a literal expression or is that a figurative expression? That is a figurative expression. That is, in fact, an anthropomorphism. So, now the question isn't, Is this really figurative or is this literal? Once you understand the Hebrew, the question is, how figurative is it? You understand where I'm going? It's not a question of literal anymore because we know that that there's not a question here on the anthropomorphism aspect. It's clearly an anthropomorphism. So the uh, concept of God's nose burning is then used analogously to relate to something in man. So... I think that we can go on to say that God does not possess emotion at the very least in terms of what man has. Um, This is uh, typical of what has been taught in in, um, 
theology and Protestant theology for hundreds of years. I ran across a quote in Calvin the other day related to a passage in Exodus where God gets angry with Israel after the golden calf incident, and there Calvin states, God has no emotion. See, the only time, and, and I have not had the opportunity to do an extensive study of this, but in terms of my own research, I do not have not found a single theologian, single conservative theologian, or otherwise, prior to the late 19th century, talk about emotion in God. It's not a category. Nobody talks about it. Now, the question that ought to come to our minds is, did something happen culturally in the late 19th century that would cause man to start thinking in terms of a new category about God? Now, the only thing that I can point to is that that's about the time Freud started foisting on the world his system of psychotherapy and putting an emphasis on emotion. And once that enters into the cultural mainstream of thinking, where getting in touch with our emotions now becomes a major factor for, for, for psychological health, then man, as is common in all paganism, uh, man returns God's favor and creates God in man's image. And so we go back and we ascribe to God our own faults and failings in order to make Him more human. And so after that, you'll find many theologians, Chaffer's one, Burkhoff's another, and they talk about God and the image of God composed of mind, will, and emotion. But this is not something you find, especially in your older classical theologians prior to the late 19th century. And I would like to have the time to spend about two or three years on sabbatical, tracing through everything to try to document that, but I don't have the luxury of doing that. So we have to understand that when we think about God, we have to think about God in terms of who He is and not in terms of our uh, faulty human concepts of sentimentality and emotion and ascribe to God our, our own failings. Now, what is the point of using these kinds of images? The point is to illustrate the severity of divine judgment. God is perfect righteousness. This is His standard. He is absolute righteousness, and God uh, cannot have a relationship with any creature that does not measure up to His absolute perfection. Justice is the application of that standard to His creatures. God's love is His unmerited and unfathomable desire to do what is best for His creatures. And then God's grace is the expression of all of that. It is the expression of of His integrity here, of His integrity toward mankind. Now, when... The righteousness of God is violated, then the justice of God must condemn, punish, or discipline the creature. Now, if God's righteousness is violated and His grace is taken advantage of and His patience is taken advantage of, then what happens is God's judgment, because of the seriousness of the violation, is extremely severe and harsh. And in order to communicate that in such a way that we understand it, harsh terms like God's anger and wrath are used in order to express that. 
Now, another thing that, that I know that some of you are still wrestling with the idea, because you grew up in some sort of silly, superficial, emotional church, and you're struggling with the concept that God doesn't have emotion. Let me present you with another something else to think about. We will use uh, a circle here to represent all of time, from the initial creation of the angels until the uh, creation of the new heavens and the earth. This is eternity future, and this is eternity past. Now, God, in His omniscience, sees all of time and eternity in one instant. In other words, there is nothing that happens in time or eternity that God has not always known about. Omniscience means that God knows all the knowable, and He knows all the knowable simultaneously. His knowledge never increases or diminishes, and He never learns anything new. Therefore, if something happens here in time, X event occurs, that is a violation of God's righteousness and His integrity, this cannot then create a reaction of emotion. Why? Emotion is the response in the soul to something that is learned. If God has always known about the idolatry of Israel from all eternity, then if He is angry in the sense that man is angry, then He would have to always be responding in anger to that known event. Is that clear? He's known about this from eternity past, so that means God would not become angry at Mount Sinai or become angry in Judges 2. He's always known that. He doesn't learn anything new. When the Jews violate His integrity and they go into idolatry, God has always known that. To say that this is emotion in any way like man's emotion is to say that God's always been angry at Israel. And that's absurd. So, we need to do a lot of thinking. In fact, I was on the phone yesterday with a friend of mine who's pastoring a doctrinal church down in Atlanta, and we were comparing some notes on this, and we both agreed that one of the greatest problems is that when most people start talking about emotion, they don't even define what emotion is. And a tremendous amount of work needs to be done on this. In fact, if you get out an English concordance and you look up the word emotion in English, it's not found anywhere in any English translation that I know of. And on, uh, on my computer, I use a, a program called Lagos, which has about 20 different versions on it. And I did a word search through all those versions one day on emotion, and that word is not found in any English translation, which means there is no original Greek or Hebrew word that corresponds to the English word emotion. So if we start there, we realize that, that maybe there's something more to this than just the kind of superficial thinking that, that characterizes much of Christianity. So the use of this phrase, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Notice how they did pick up the verb there, but the word anger in the, in the Hebrew isn't anger, it's nose, literally. The nose of the Lord burned against Israel, which is just a figure of speech for his, the activity of His discipline on Israel. And he said, now, what I want you to notice is that between verse, let's go back, between verse 
14, where it says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And verse 20, so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Those two phrases bracket the verses from 14 down through 20. And that is a, an ex- tells us that everything within those verses is an expression of the judgment and discipline of God on the nation. So let's review what it means to have divine discipline. Divine discipline refers to all of the punitive action which is taken by the justice of God and motivated by His grace and love. See, discipline may be harsh and painful, but it is motivated by love. See, we get too many people who think that if you impose something painful and harsh on someone, that means you don't really love them. And uh, if you're a parent and you've adopted that view, then you're just guaranteed a lot of failure for your children. Because one of the things you have to learn from God, like in Hebrews chapter 11, for whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and scourges alive every son whom He receives. And if you haven't experienced that, then you must be perfect. Most of us know exactly what it means for God to really lay into us at one time or another, and it's extremely painful, and God knows just precisely what to do in our lives to get our attention. So this refers to the punitive action taken by the justice of God, motivated by His grace and love, to correct, to punish, to encourage, to train, and to stimulate the believer's volition, his free will, to execute the plan of God. Divine discipline is parental training for sons of God, designed to inculcate humility and true objectivity in life. You see, if you don't learn to orient to grace and orient to doctrine, then you go through life... Uh, operating on subjectivity, and you make the same mistake the Jews made. You become your standard uh, of of relationship. You you become the ultimate reference point for your own life, and so all meaning and value is determined by how it makes you feel, and that is what subjectivity is. You focus on yourself rather than on an external, objective standard and revelation from God. There are three stages of... Uh, divine discipline. There's warning discipline, which encourages the believer to recover. There is intensive discipline, which encourages the believer to uh, to get out of reversionism. And then, and I'm off the screen, then there is dying discipline, which is the final stage of the sin unto death, when the believer has failed so miserably that God decides to take them out and uh, early and remove them from the planet. Now, God doesn't do that with a lot of believers who are failures, as you might notice. And you might say, well, why is it that God has left that person who has screwed up his life so desperately and is so deeply enmeshed in carnality? Why are they still alive to test the rest of us? We'll see that in this passage. And see, you have to ask yourself sometimes, are you left here on earth to glorify God or to be a source of testing for other believers? I won't make any application to anyone on that this morning. Okay, let's look at Judges chapter 2, verse 14. Then it came about, and the anger of the Lord, which is the nose of the Lord, burned against Israel, and He gave them into the hands of plunderers. Now, this is a fascinating word that is used here in in verse uh, verse 14, and it indicates God's sovereignty in Israel the history of Israel. The term God gave them into the hands of Israel is designed to show that God controls history and the events of history. One point is 
that we need to remember is that God has determined that uh, in eternity past that His sovereignty and human freedom would coexist in human history. And so man has exercised his volition negatively and God responds through his sovereignty and he is going to control history to bring about discipline. It says, And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He gave them into the hands of plunderers. Now what we should notice here is the, this brought military and economic disaster on Israel. But the cause was not military failure or bad economic policy. The cause was spiritual failure. And probably because of spiritual failure, they adopted policies in the military that reduced its force and reduced the armament and operated on policies of economics that were dangerous. And so the natural consequences came together and weakened the nation so that they could easily were easily uh, defeated by surrounding nations. And it says God sold them. Active verb. God is the one who causes them to be sold into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Now, this is a very strong statement. This is explaining what it means that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. It's an explanation of the anthropopathism. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. This is not moral evil, but this is horrible circumstances. Was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to him. See, all of this just demonstrates that God is faithful to his covenant. For in his covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, God had outlined that he would punish Israel if they disobeyed him and went uh, and got involved in idolatry and the fertility religions. So even though they broke the covenant, God is faithful to the covenant and so is punishing them. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And the word there... For raised up is the Hebrew word that is in the Hiphiel tense, excuse me, Hiphiel stem, which indicates that God causes the action. This is God's control of history. Again, you have two verbs here in the Hiphiel, and you have the verb for, for raised up as well as the verb for delivered. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them. And the word for deliver. The word for delivered looks like this in the Hebrew. Gasha. Uh, and it's in the Hiphil tense. And this is the root. It is Y-S-H-A. And it is translated uh, Yeshua in the noun, which is also translated Joshua, and is the Hebrew rendering for the name of Jesus. And it means uh, to deliver or to save, and it's a picture of God's saving grace in the nation. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered, caused them to be delivered, hiphil imperfect, caused them to be delivered or saved from the hands of those who plundered them. We must remember when we look at this that it is always God in His grace who exercises the initiative to save man. Notice verse 15 says, 
that wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Now, the question is, do you see any sign of repentance at that point, a change of mind? Are they coming back to the Lord? No. Then the Lord raised up judges. See, this is the operation of God's grace. God's grace is not dependent upon human action or human volition. God's grace is motivated exclusively by His character and His love and not by man's actions. So man in His grace, excuse me, God in His grace exercises the deliverance option for Israel in order to take the pressure off to give them the opportunity to get back in positive volition. But we see the response to that in 2.17. And yet they did not listen to the judges for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. You see, Scripture always represents or uses sexual analogies to represent man's faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. And they are in a covenant relationship with God. His love is described as chesed, which means covenant faithfulness. And it's the same concept as what takes place in a marriage contract. When you get married, you basically enter into a covenant with your spouse. When you are unfaithful to that covenant, that is called adultery. And so God uses that term, adultery, to relate to any kind of covenant unfaithfulness. And so it is applied to God and His relationship to Israel. They, are, they have broken the covenant. They have become unfaithful to God. And so He uses the image of adultery and prostitution to illustrate the seriousness of that uh, action. That God does not take this lightly, and He is going to judge them. So they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot, they played the prostitute after other gods, and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside. Now, the, the interesting thing is that the word here for turning aside is the Hebrew word, it is the P-A-L of shuv, S-H-U-V, and it means to turn. Now, this word is sometimes used in analogy with uh, nacham, which means to also, to, which means to repent, and is used sometimes to refer to God, as it is in verse 18. But shuv is a synonym of nachav, and this is the only time that this concept is used in this section. It is not to describe Israel turning to God. It is used to describe their turning from God to idols. So they turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. Now, verse 18. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity. Now, that's an awful translation. We'll have to come back and look at that in a minute. By their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Now, the Hebrew here is much more uh, illustrative for us than what we find in the English translation. First of all, we have the verb for raised up. The Lord raised up, and this is the hyphial perfect of the verb kum. Same verb we had back in verse 16. Looks like this, kum, Q-U-M, 
the Lord raised up or elevated shows once again God's grace initiative in human history. God raised up judges for them. So He caused these men to be elevated to positions of leadership. So this is a function of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty working with human freedom. God did not force these men into their position. God did not override their volition. We will see how that operated with many of them, but God gave them, uh, in many cases, the Holy Spirit, not for their spiritual life, but to enable them to have military victory. And God uh, raised up these men in conjunction with their own volition, their own freedom to respond. And then, as part of that response, they led the nation in military victory and then helped rule the nation for a period of time. So, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. Now, this in the Hebrew is an interesting preposition. Im. I am. And it means, uh, it refers to actions done jointly with another. Now, that's just one of probably 20 different meanings. And it means actions done jointly with another. So, it indicates that God is working along with the individual. This is divine sovereignty operating in conjunction with human responsibility and human free will. So, God raised to them judges, and God was with the judge, and God delivered. He delivered them from the hand of all their enemies, for their enemies all the days of the judge. And then there's an explanation, and we have the Hebrew preposition key, which is similar to gar in the Greek, indicates an explanation, because the Lord was naham. And here's the verb, naham, N-A-C-H-A-M. Now, naham is an interesting word. It means to turn, or to, it's translated turn, repent, change his mind, uh, but it has, it again, is an anthropopathism. God does not repent like man repents. God, cha- God, in fact, what this describes is the fact that God has flexibility in human history. Flexibility in human history. See, too often we get the idea that human history, it's almost fatalistic, has, and that God is rigid. Immutability means God can't change the way He's functioning. Obviously, He does. He had a different way in the Old Testament. He has a slightly different way in the New Testament based upon certain things. There are certain things that are the same, but certain things that are different. God is flexible in response to man's decisions. And when man chooses to be a failure, God is going to respond and change the circumstances for that individual so that he goes through discipline and negative circumstances. When man is disobedient, God is going to be flexible and reverse his policy so that uh, he can discipline them after a while to deliver them and lighten up on the discipline. And that's what this indicates. Nacham simply means that God changes his policy. At this point, from discipline to reprieve. So the Lord was moved to pity. Now, we use that translation because that's what it seems like to us, but God does not pity us. That is not the literal meaning of Naham. It's simply a figure of speech for God changing His policy and lightening the load. 
God changed his policy in lightening the load by their groaning. Now, here's another interesting word. It is the uh, Hebrew word na'acha. N-A-A-Q-A-H. Na'acha, which means basically, to put it in language we'll all understand, it means to whine, to moan, to complain, to cry out, and you can put in whatever idiom you want to. But they're out there just whining and complaining to God about all these uh, negative things that are happening. And so God lines the Notice it doesn't say they changed their mind, they turned back to God, they became obedient, they rejected the idols. It doesn't say anything like that. It just says that, God, that they whined and complained to God, and finally God relented uh, and lightened up on the discipline. And he provides a judge, and then in verse 19, but it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. What we see is in Israel's, in this little snapshot of Israel, is the same thing that happens in the lives of many believers. God takes us through a period of discipline because we have. We're going through reversionism, we're in carnality, and God uh, begins to discipline us and things get pretty miserable and we begin to cry out to God and we try to uh, somehow assuage God's disciplinary aspect by showing up in Bible class a few times. And uh, we use 1 John 1, 9 a lot. We don't go any further than that, but we convince ourselves that since we're confessing our sins consistently, that somehow we must be growing. But 1 John 1, 9 doesn't cause you to grow. It simply puts you back to a position where you can grow and utilize the other stress busters and spiritual skills. But they're not doing that. They're just whining and complaining, and God lightens the load to give you a little breather. Okay, I'm going to lighten up for a while. Things are going to look pretty good. I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to uh, change your mind and start getting positive to doctrine and applying doctrine. And if you don't, then, well, I'll come back and I'll tighten the screws a little more. And that's exactly what happens in this process and in the procedures, they go through one cycle and another. Then in verse 20, we see the end. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now, there is a gradual deterioration throughout the book that follows this pattern. From one judge to the other, it gets worse. And we see this cycle of deterioration, and we'll, we'll see it starting in verse 7 of chapter 3, that from judge to judge, it just gets worse. Worse. They, they, God raises up a judge, uh, they delivered, then they continue in their, the judge dies, they continue in their idolatry, they go through a cycle of, of uh, discipline, and then God raises up another judge. But each time they do worse, uh, according to verse 19, they turn back and they act more corruptly until finally you get to Samson and there's no repentance, there's no deliverance, there's no judge to replace him, and he is just as much a corrupt pagan failure as anybody else around them. It looks something like this. First, there's apostasy or reversionism, rejection of doctrine, and this leads to oppression from a foreign power. This is the divine discipline. And then they respond by moaning and whining. Then God sends a deliverer, one of the judges, and that judge dies and they're back into apostasy. And that cycle just continues. And you can see that in the lives of many people. Now, this is what it looks like on God's side. First, there is the anger. That is the rejection of God's perfect righteousness, rejects man's behavior. And so there is the exercise of judgment. This leads to divine discipline. 
that divine discipline then should then produces a change of policy or change of mind on God's part and he begins to lighten up because of the groaning and whining of the people and he sends a deliverer and then they disobey again violate the righteousness of God so he responds in in the uh, what the figure of speech says is anger but it's really the function of his uh, the rege- the uh, rejection of their behavior by his perfect righteousness and then the exercise of justice in divine discipline. And this cycle just continues throughout the book of Judges. Now, look at what happens at the end. Verse 20, the second part of 20, we see uh, God's response and God's interpretation of these events. He says, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice. Now, I want you to notice something. He says, because this nation. And in the Hebrew, he doesn't call them Israel. He calls them this goy, this goy, this nation. The goy is usually the term used to refer to Gentiles. Rarely in the Scripture does it ever apply to Israel. God never calls it the goy, that is the nation Israel. It's, it, they're not called goy. This is an insult. And what it means is that they're acting no different from the, na- the Gentile nations around them. There's nothing to distinguish them. They're not living in light of the covenant that God has given them, and they are disobedient to God. And so God is going to respond a certain way in verse 21. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. In other words, I'm going to leave all the Canaanites in place. Now, this is really the answer to the problem of why the believer's sin nature is just as powerful and just as evil as it was before we were saved. It's, a, it's testing. So you not only get tested from outside pressure of adversity, but you get pressured from uh, the in, a little inside pressures put on you by the sin nature. This is illustrated if we look back up in verse 19 of this chapter when we read that... Um, uh, or in verse 18, at the end there, they groaned because they were oppressed and afflicted. And the Hebrew word there is um, uh, lahat. And lahat means to squeeze or to pressure. And the second word, which is translated afflicted, is rahak, which also means to be under pressure. They're synonyms. And the idea there is the outside pressure of adversity. And just as Israel goes through the outside pressure of adversity from these various enemies... So we go through the outside pressure of adversity from all sorts of sources. Now what's going to happen is God's going to allow these enemies to continue in their midst inside the land, and that's analogous to the believer who still has a sin nature, the enemy of the soul, operating in his body. And this is a source of continuous testing for us. And the purpose of that testing is to demonstrate our character. That is always the purpose of of, uh, testing is to demonstrate what the value system is for the individual going through the testing. And the verb for testing is nasa. It's in the PL, which is the intensive form. And it means to test or to try something to att- in order to attempt to learn the true nature of that thing. So the test is designed to reveal our true nature and what's really going on inside of our soul. And so God is going to leave these nations in place in order to test Israel to determine whether they're obedient or not. And that word nasa is also used back in Genesis 22 of God's testing Abraham with the sacrifice of Isaac to reveal what is in the soul. It's comparable in the New Testament to what James talks about 
to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's a testing designed to show what is there in terms of spiritual growth. And then in chapter 3, we see the nature of this. It's just a quick summary and a list of all the nations that God left there. We'll come back and deal with them specifically in the context of each judge. But we're told that these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel. They're listed in verse 3. The Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who live in Mount Lebanon. And uh, uh, all of these are left to test Israel. Verse 5, skip down to verse 5. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites. And now we see this coexistence with the pagans and pagan thought. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves. That means that they're totally assimilating into, into pagan culture. They took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. In conclusion, what we see in all of this is that the compromise in solving the pressures and adversities of life leads to the reversionism of the believer, the paganization of his thinking, and the paganization of the culture. We have to remember that the divine solution is the only solution and that the human solution is no solution. When the human solution is adopted instead of the divine solution, the result is always going to be personal misery, catastrophe, degeneration, and your life will never be as miserable as when you do that. So we have to remember, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. As goes the Jewish believer in their rebellion, so went the nation in decline. And the same thing is true for today. It happens nationally, and it happens personally and individually. And the only solution is exclusive dependence upon God, making Bible doctrine the highest priority in life and your relationship with God and spiritual growth the highest priority in life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the time to look at this and to understand the horrible consequences of reversionism and spiritual decline. And we pray that we might be challenged and warned by this. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's uncertain of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to be aware that You are a God who has uh, judged sin. You judge sin at the cross so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. So the only decision that must be made is whether or not to believe or believe in Christ or to accept the free gift of salvation. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that we'd be challenged by the things that we've studied, that we might not follow the negative example of Israel, but that we might continue to pursue spiritual growth in making you the number one priority in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.